Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. If you could just wrap up your conversations, thank you. Thanks, guys. That was probably the quickest we've ever had. Well done. Um, I'm just going to read the uh, Bible for us this morning. Um, Our first reading is going to be from Isaiah 42, uh, from verse 1 to, now I have to check, from what, verse 1 to verse 7. If you'd like to read along, there are Bibles at the end of the pews there. And so this reading um, is one kind of prophecy that God speaks through the prophet Isaiah regarding this future servant that um, God has chosen to accomplish his will through. So read with me from verse 1. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching the islands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says, the creator of the heavens, who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people, and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. And we will now read from Matthew chapter 10, where Jacko will be preaching from this morning, verses 1 to 16. That can be found on page 1,001, sorry, 1,510 in the Pew Bibles. And Jesus has just been performing lots of miracles, and he's just turned to his disciples to talk about the harvest that is ready um, to be ministered to. Starting at verse 1. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or into any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. 
no bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Thanks very much for reading, Ellen. Good morning, everyone. Uh, if you don't know who I am, I'm Simon. Uh, people affectionately call me Jacko around here. My last name's Jackson. Call me Jacko. Not very creative, but that's who I am. It's really nice to see you all this morning. A really warm welcome to you if you're new or visiting today. Uh, we are picking up or continuing our series through the Gospel according to Matthew. And today we come to chapters 10, 11, and 12. The way we're moving through Matthew is, rather than sort of doing verse by verse, to some degree, where, uh, where we, which could take us, I don't know, 12 years to get through Matthew's gospel if we did it like that. Um, rather than doing it verse by verse, and rather than just doing it sort of big thematic sweeps through, we're doing these sort of uh, blocks of two or three chapters at a time. So today we're working through 10, 11, and 12. So I hope you've had your coffee. Um, hope you're comfortable as we get into that this morning. Um, I often do this, if you're new here, I often get you to chat amongst yourselves just for a minute or so about a question that may or may not have something to do with today's sermon. Um, so here is the question for you today. Um, who are you? Who are you? I want you to turn to the person next to you and maybe get in first, ask them who they are and listen to what they say about themselves, okay? Who are you? If you were to answer that question, what would you say? I'll give you about 60 seconds. Go. Christian, a father, or oh, a husband, a father, a pastor, a Richmond fan. I oh, know that's about where I'm at. <laughs> a Swifty. So true. That's what that's what we're called. The true, the true humans. <laughs> All right. All right. For some of us, I reckon 
For some of us in the room, you could probably talk all day about that the question. Just, just keep describing who you are. You're such a wonderfully rich, complex person. You could talk about that for hours. For some of us, not so much. Uh, do, if you were tempted at some stage to close the gospel according to Matthew, or you perhaps didn't get a chance to open it up, I do. It'd be great if you could open it up to chapter 10 um, and just follow along with me uh, through these chapters of uh, the Word of God, uh, which God has, in His grace, left for us uh, to understand and to know. I'm going to pray briefly and then we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, thank you for your Word. Uh, Lord, thank you for bringing us uh, to this place this day uh, we pray that, Father, as we gather here, you would address us uh, as your people, uh, remind us of who we are in the Lord Jesus and what we've been called to as members of his kingdom. I pray this morning for those who are here today and who are still working out who Jesus is. I pray, Father, that uh, by your spirit and through your word, uh, you would open eyes, unstop deaf ears and soften hearts to see, hear and love Jesus. And I pray that for each one of us, we pray, whether we're been a follower of Jesus for a long time, whether we are still working out who he is or whether we're brand new to the faith, I pray, Father, that you would help us to see, hear and love Jesus. And we pray this in his name and all God's people said, Amen. Who are you? Who are we as Christians? Who are you? It's a good question, isn't it? Um, how do you define yourself in your own mind? What is your identity? There are a number of different parameters you could use. I don't know if you started reaching for different things to describe who you were just a couple of minutes ago. Uh, heaps of different parameters. Yeah, you could use your age. Um, are you old or are you young or are you, I don't know, on the cusp of something? Um, are you a family person? Are you married? Are you not yet married? Are you footloose and fancy free? Where do you come in birth order? Are you first, second, or are you that middle child? Um, where do you come from? What's your ethnicity? Indian, Lebanese, British, Brazilian, Southeast Asian, Australian? What's your language? I only have an L1. I speak only English. Uh, maybe you have an L2, an L3, an L4. My grandfather had an L7. Um, what's your educational background? Primary, secondary, tertiary? Perhaps you're one of those people who lives in the world and you have not yet received an education. Uh, what about your income? Under 60, 60 to 100, 100 plus K? Um, who sets those parameters? What do they even mean? Um, what's your address? Where do you live? Do you live in the good part of town or the shady part of town? What tribe do you belong to? Conservative, liberal, labor, goth, hipster? Are you a Swifty? I said before, Stella and I are Swifties, the true humans. No, um, what about, um, like me, I'm not really a Swifty, maybe I'm more of a, what I call normcore. Uh, normcore are those who find liberation in being nothing special. People who know they're just one in eight billion. Um, and significant in our day and age is your sexuality. What do you identify as? What is your identity? It's complex, isn't it? Identity can be really confusing, a really confusing thing, which is why Matthew, the writer of this gospel, devotes chapters 10, 11, and 12 of his gospel explaining what it really means to belong to Jesus, to belong to the kingdom of heaven, to belong to Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
But when Jesus started preaching, he announced the kingdom of heaven had come near. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gave us a detailed picture of what the beautiful life is like in that kingdom. Last week, Andrew showed us how Matthew highlights the dramatic impact of the coming kingdom has. Jesus changes lives. Read back over Matthew 8 and 9. Just Jesus is changing lives everywhere. And now in Matthew 10, 10, 11, and 12, Matthew focuses on two realities of kingdom life. Our mission and our Lord. Our mission and our Lord in these three chapters. Now, a striking thing about these three chapters is the way in which Matthew, the writer of the gospel, just piles up indicative after indicative. There aren't many imperatives at all in this section of scripture. Very few commands. This isn't a, this is what we should do section. This is a, this is who we are section. If we've been caught up by grace in God's kingdom. For those who belong to Jesus, in these chapters, we find our DNA, our deepest responsibility and our highest privilege as members of God's family. These chapters do take us to the very core of our identity. So beginning in chapter 10, Matthew basically says, here is our mission. Here is our mission. Now, given that Jesus finished chapter 9 with a call to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out more workers into the harvest, it's hardly surprising that Matthew picks up the idea of mission as you flip the page and go into chapter 10. But what's unique is the way in which Matthew gathers together Jesus' teaching on this theme which is actually scattered all throughout, say, Mark and Luke, the other couple of Gospels, as Jesus first sends out the 12, then he sends out 72, with, and then all of us. But Matthew packages all of the stuff on this theme into one particular place, chapter 10, starting with specific initial instructions to the 12 for their first short-term mission trip. Then the chapter moves quickly and seamlessly into the shape of the mission that we're all caught up in if you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew, did you notice at the start of chapter 10, starts by highlighting who's involved in this mission. We heard the list as Ellen read it out. The 12 apostles, Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, etc., It's easy to skip over the fact that this is a very surprising list of people. In the rest of the Gospels themselves, only half of these named witnesses gets a speaking role. Most of them just get walk-on parts in the show. Travel deeper into the New Testament and you'll find that only one of the 12, Peter, really does anything of sort of significance. You see, these are not 12 or 11 sort of amazing people, founders of Christianity. There's no encouragement here in this part of God's word to immortalise these men in stained glass windows or erect grand statues of them or even name buildings like this, we're in technically St Andrew's Church, after them in their honour. The point is actually really opposite. Jesus picks a bunch of very ordinary, unremarkable blokes to carry on his mission. It's all about him, not them or us. 
The reality is underlined time and time again as Matthew turns to what's involved in the mission. You see, to be part of the kingdom of Jesus is to be caught up in a mission launched by Jesus himself. Have a look at verse 1, chapter 10. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. It's even clearer in verse 7. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. The message is Jesus' message. The method of backing up the message is the same, even including raising the dead and healing every possible disease. Now, this is clearly the launch phase of Jesus' mission. It starts with a bang um, that's not even sustained, by the way, until the end of Jesus' time on earth let alone to the end of the New Testament and today. And I think it's overreaching to assume that Jesus or Matthew is implying that raising the dead, for example, is to be an everyday occurrence on mission. Didn't even occur every day in the gospel. John Calvin says this ability wasn't an inheritance for them to hand down to their descendants, but a seal of the preaching of the gospel for that occasion. My key point, well, Matthew's key point here, is that Jesus' mission is our mission. It is to be continued by ordinary men and women like us. As with Jesus himself, they're to go first to God's original covenant people. Verse 5, these 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather, Jesus said, to the lost sheep of Israel. Now, Matthew has already given strong hints in, the, in his gospel so far that the message of the gospel, the message of the kingdom is beginning to seep out to the Gentiles, to the nations, like the Magi we met in uh, chapter 2 or the centurion we met last week in chapter 8. But for now, the focus falls on the Jews who are to be the first to be offered the gospel for free. See the last bit of verse 8? Freely you have received, freely give. Jesus also insists that we, from the get-go, that we're not to make money out of gospel ministry. Verse 9, do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worth his keep. The labourer is worth their food. It's not saying don't pay gospel workers. But the thing here is not to accumulate all sorts of other benefits, let alone to ask for money. The reality is that the mission of Jesus is always fatally compromised when money becomes the driver. Seen that. So Jesus says, verse 11, whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it's not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on that day of judgment than for that town. You see, the mission of Jesus, which is launched here with these ordinary 12 people, is serious and focused and results in both salvation and judgment. 
Now, at this point, Matthew segues seamlessly into the kind of reception, not just that these first 12 will receive as they go out in Jesus' name, but that all of us who are drawn into this mission project can expect. Here's how we can expect to be treated. Look with me at verse 16. Hold on to your hats as we look at verse 16, by the way. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves, therefore be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. We are sheep. Did you say that when I asked you the question, who are you? Did you say, I'm a sheep? Probably not. I don't tend to think of myself as a sheep straight up, but yeah, we're sheep. Like it or not, we're vulnerable, liable to being pushed and shoved around. Let's face it, we're not the smartest. Given we're surrounded by wolves, we're soft targets. Jesus knows all of that, and he sends us out anyway. There's nothing we can do to avoid this vulnerability. Of course, we don't have to be ridiculously gullible. We can be shrewd sheep, but we also need to be open and guileless as doves. Whether we like it or not, we are sheep, and I think we need to embrace our sheepness, and that means being prepared to be eaten. See, the truth is, people are not lovely. We can't expect people to be reasonable or respectful or fair. Instead, we can expect, according to Jesus in verses 17 to 18, what F.C. Brunner, a commentator on Matthew, calls the ABC of missions. Turn to the person next to you. I'm going to give you 10 seconds. What do you think of the ABC of missions? Have a quick chat to the person next to you. Go. What do you think that might stand for? Go. 10, 9... <laughs> Five, four, three, two, one. Okay, time's up, time's up. What do you think A, B, and C? We're talking about mission. We're talking about being sheep going out into the world, wolves everywhere. We're vulnerable. We're not very smart. We're like, wah. A, B, C, what do you reckon? Always be careful. Always be careful. That's a good one. Yeah. Anything else? What could they be? A, B, C. Don't be scared, we're all friends. There's no wrong answers. Alert, that's good, yeah, that's good. Wrong, but good. <laughs> yeah. Bold as children? Yeah, that's, that's good, that's good. We'll get to some kid stuff in a minute. Wrong, but good, yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you, um, FC Brunner, when he thinks about going out of mission, ABC, arrests, beatings, and confrontations. And you're all like, woohoo! Game on. Now, given it's Jesus' mission, right? Now, extending to all nations, hey, one of the wonderful things is he doesn't just send us out and go, therefore, go and fend for yourself. He gives us all the resources that we need. Verse 19. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you'll be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Yeah? But notice that nothing can shield us from this hostility. Even family ties won't be of any use. Verse 22, you will be hated by everyone because of me. Yay! Jesus then goes on to outline how we should respond. How should we respond? We should keep on going. Because the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. 
In the short term, Jesus tells us to keep moving with the good news of the gospel. Verse 23, when you're persecuted in one place, flee to another. Truly I tell you, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. There are all kinds of ideas about what Jesus means here. I think it most likely refers to Jesus' death and resurrection, although it might also be his coming judgment against Jerusalem in AD 70. But either way, the point is clear. Jesus is interested in mission not martyrdom. As Puritan Matthew Henry says, it is not an inglorious thing for Christ's soldiers to quit their ground, provided they do not quit their colours. It is not an inglorious thing for Christ's soldiers to quit their grounds, to move on, provided they do not quit their colours. See, the fact that this mission we're part of is Jesus' mission makes it inevitable that we share in the same kind of treatment that Jesus himself received. He endured this stuff. Why would we be any different? Verse 24, 25. The student is not above the teacher, nor a servant above his master. Is it not, it is not, is it, it is enough for students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household? It does sound a little silly, But it's really easy to slip into thinking that if only we're really thoughtful, super winsome, culturally sensitive, and put on our best super friendly smile, even with a moustache, that we'll be able to pull off what the Lord Jesus Christ, the all-perfect, all-knowing, true human, the one who happens to be God, couldn't pull off himself. It's not going to happen. We're not going to please everyone. Jesus isn't using hyperbole here. He's not joking when he says you'll be hated. We need to be realistic. And we also need to determine who we're going to fear. Either we fear other people, the people to whom we're sent, or we fear God, the one who sends us. Verse 26. So do not be afraid of them. For for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the rooftops. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Our awesome God, the judge of all the earth, is the one to whom we're responsible. But do notice, in the same breath, Jesus says he's also the one who pays incredibly detailed attention to sparrows and the numbers of hairs on our heads. Now, that number of hairs on our heads may vary from person to person, but it's still terribly comforting, even for me. That's why we should fear him, not others. The God who doesn't let a sparrow fall, the God who knows every hair, even on my head. Now, if we fear God like this, there will be no contest. We'll fulfill our mission and readily acknowledge the Lord Jesus before anyone and everyone. Verse 32, knowing that to deny him is to make a tragic and very costly mistake. Can you see how Matthew is helping us to see that our mission is actually Jesus' mission? It's not for the faint-hearted. Jesus sums it up in striking terms in verse 34. Do not suppose I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. 
He then quotes Micah 800 years earlier, who said, For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. In other words, Jesus says, I am demanding and divisive. This is what the gospel does. It demands and it divides. The mission is full on and all-consuming, and it's not simply for the really zealous and enthusiastic people. It's... It's for all who are in Christ. Matthew shows us that life on mission with Jesus is relentlessly demanding. I reckon there is a sense that these words don't actually need explaining. They just need to be heard and then put into action. Verse 37. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Verse 39, whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Did you hear that? This is what mission involves. Loving Jesus more than our parents. Loving Jesus more than our children. Sorry, Stella. Deliberately choosing to die to ourselves. Submitting our own ideas, our agendas, our comforts, our dreams to Jesus and following him come what may. Putting our whole lives at his disposal in order to find life to the full in him. I mentioned earlier that this section is just full of indicatives, right? Grammar is good for you. Indicatives are not imperatives. Imperatives are the command words, right? It's just full of indicatives, these are not commands. These are statements of fact, of reality. His mission is now our mission. This is who we are, our, our identity as we belong to Jesus, which is why Jesus says what he says in 1040. Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me, and anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. Whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. To receive us is to receive Jesus. Why? Because his mission is our mission. We've joined him on this cosmic quest. I hope you've got that. I hope we've got that at City Light Church, North Adelaide. This is our mission, and there is no reason to think that people will like us. This is our mission, and there is no reason to think people will listen. This is our mission, and there is every reason to expect people to reject us and the message. This is our mission, and there is no room to act like being on mission is an optional extra that's reserved for Jesus' really crack troops. We're all on mission. And here we're on mission to see more people, more like Jesus from all nations. For those of us united to Christ by the Holy Spirit, who belong to him by grace through faith, this is who we are. This is what it means to be in his kingdom. There is no other option because there is no other Lord, which is where Matthew takes us in chapters 11 and 12. We are on mission. It's who we are because there is no other Lord. For one last time this morning, turn to the person next to you 
And I just want you to tell the person next to you really quickly, what is your favourite thing about Jesus right now? If you're here as a Christian, hopefully you've got something to say. If you're not here as a Christian, listen to what the person next to you has to say. Have a quick go. What's, what do you love about Jesus right now? What's your favourite thing about Jesus right now, this morning? Go. 15 seconds. Go. Oh, it's sunny. Loving it. says that I'm to love him more than you. (laughs) All right, let's come back together. If I can can steal Tom's really quickly, um, Tom just goes, oh, Sonny's just fallen asleep over here, little Sonny on the the pew. Maybe you're feeling like that's what you want to do as well. Um, But Tom just goes, oh, what I love about Jesus right now, he's his word put Sonny to sleep. (laughs) There you go, there you go. Um, let's have a go. So we're on mission. This is who we are because there is no other Lord. Matthew 11 and 12. Um, Matthew gathers material in these chapters uh, to say Jesus is our Lord. Um, There's no doubt um, that Jesus' words about mission and Matthew, I find them, um, and the way he configures them, they're searching, they're confronting, they're challenging. I think they're also thrilling and ennobling and purposeful. But behind this mission, we have to remember that the that Jesus, the Lord, stands behind the whole project. He's the one who commands and equips, who motivates and inspires us, who carries us even as we serve him, which is wonderful. He's the one who shapes and defines not only our mission, but every facet of our lives and our identity. So in chapters 11 and 12, Matthew just sort of simply flashes up these rapid-fire kind of little vignettes or pictures of who Jesus is. There are at least nine that tell us that Jesus is Lord. The first one comes at the very beginning of chapter 11. We see that Jesus is the promised Messiah. If you've been with us through Matthew so far, you'd have seen that in blazing lights. He is the promised Messiah. The first 19 verses of chapter 11, we're not told specifically why John the Baptist is having second thoughts about Jesus, but clearly he is. Have a look at chapter 11, verse 2. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, get this, are you the one who, sorry, John's saying, go to Jesus, ask him this question, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Really interesting question if you know John the Baptist, right? Now, the fact that John the Baptist was in prison with virtually no chance of getting out probably didn't help his mood very much, nor the fact that after holding up Jesus as the one who would come baptizing with the Holy Spirit and fire, all we've really seen Jesus doing for the last little while is having a lot of talk with his disciples and healing some fairly unexpected people from, I don't know, the backwaters of Galilee. Not a lot of fire around. Jesus' answer, though, is unambiguous. Verse 4, 
Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. The prophecies of Isaiah 29, 35, and 61, bam, 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 fulfilled all over the place. So hang in there, says Jesus to John. Blessed is the one who does not stumble on account of me. Now at this point, Jesus somewhat unexpectedly, given the question John asks, takes a moment to affirm John in the most glowing terms. Jesus says, John is the real deal. He's the greatest of all the prophets. Verse 11, truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Do you hear that? Among those born of women, there's not been anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Even the one who had the clearest grasp on who Jesus is, is eclipsed by all of us if you're in Christ sitting here today. Why? Because we've tasted what John only got to introduce. We've all tasted life in the kingdom of the Messiah. John only got to experience the very beginnings. Verse 12, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence and violent people have been raiding it. It's kind of confusing what Jesus means here. Jesus either means the kingdom has been advancing but has been attacked or that it, just that it has been attacked and it's being attacked. Either way, it's going to get better because breakthrough is coming. Nothing will ever be the same again. And Jesus acknowledges that John didn't get to see this. And up to this point, most of the people who John spoke to didn't see it. In fact, John says their entire generation is like sulky children who responded neither to Jesus' dance music because it was far too joyful and not spiritual enough, nor to John's funeral march, which was far too miserable and far too spiritual. Verse 16. So what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say he is a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Jesus says ultimately... The apparently foolish wisdom of the gospel will win out as it becomes clear as day that he is the promised Messiah, the King. He's the promised Messiah. He's also the coming judge. You see this in verses 20 through 24. The urgency of the mission flows from the fact that he's the one to whom one day every person who's ever existed will bow the knee, willingly, unwillingly, especially those who've seen and heard heard him and yet not responded in repentance and faith. From verse 20, Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Three of Jesus' disciples, by the way, were from those towns. For if if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, pagan cities... They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes, but I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the heavens? No, you'll go down to Hades. For if the miracles that performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. It's kind of ironic 
Jesus now sounds, he begins to sound exactly like how John the Baptist really wanted him to sound. But while it is possible to dwell way too much on Jesus as our judge and the judge of all mankind, the trap that perhaps John the Baptist fell into, it's also possible to neglect that reality. That one day Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. Because when you see this, Matthew wants us to think this is God. This is the living God of power and majesty and to realise that the long-promised and hoped-for Messiah is our judge as well as our saviour and the son who reveals the father in the power of the Holy Spirit. I think there are a few chapters in the Bible that do such a fine job at balancing the searing greatness and the gracious tenderness of the Lord Jesus than this one. Look at verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. John Calvin again, quote, where us, we're constantly looking for splendour, and nothing appears to us more incongruous than that the heavenly kingdom of the Son of God, whose glory is so magnificently celebrated by the prophets, should consist of the dregs and off-scarrings of the common people. That's us dregs and off-scarrings of the common people. Use that next time someone asks you, who are you? Say, thanks for asking. I'm the dregs and the off-scarrings of the common people. Right. We're toddlers at best. And yet because of the sheer grace-filled, mercy-racked decision of God, the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, We're caught up in the warmth and tenderness of the living God. Verse 26, Yes, Father, for this is what you are pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. How all of this fits together is a profound mystery, but it's a glorious reality. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son, introduces us to the intimate family life of the true and living God that has existed for all eternity. The Messiah, King Jesus, the judge, is our elder brother, and he's the one in whom we have rest. Verse 28 to 30. Even in the middle of this demanding, challenging, inspiring, difficult mission, hear these wonderful words of Jesus, so precious, so so well known. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The phrase yoke of the Torah was a common one in Jesus' day. It weighed people down. But Jesus is good, different. His yoke is different. Dane Ortland, in his wonderful book, beautiful book, Gentle and Lowly, I can strongly encourage you to read it, writes this. What helium does to a balloon, Jesus' yoke does to his followers. We are buoyed along in life by his endless gentleness and supremely accessible lowliness. 
He doesn't simply meet us in our place of need. He lives in our place of need. He never tires of sweeping us into his tender embrace. It is his very heart. It is what gets him out of bed in the morning. Isn't that beautiful? He doesn't just simply meet us in our place of need, Ortland writes. He lives in our place of need. He never tires of sweeping us into his tender embrace. It is his very heart. You see, Jesus introduces us to this beautiful life. He shares his beautiful life with us. He enables us to collapse into his arms, taking all the weight and the strain we feel in life upon himself. He's the giver of rest. Life with Jesus is difficult, demanding, it's dangerous, it's delightful, and any other D word you can think of, and it's deeply refreshing and restorative. He's the giver of rest. But Matthew rushes on because Jesus is also Lord of the Sabbath and the true temple. Now, I suspect for most of us, right, you're going, "Uh, Jacko, like, no offence, but what's so great about that? I suspect at the beginning of Matthew chapter 12, it's one of those parts of the gospel we don't really sort of read and go, wow, that really cranks my handle, that really floats my boat, given that most of us are Gentile Christians living in the 21st century. You see, the argument here is with the Pharisees who are struggling with the fact that Jesus is picking grain on the Sabbath. They accuse Jesus of being deeply unbiblical in chapter 12, verse 2, actually, more specifically, of breaking their list of 39 things you're not supposed to do on the Sabbath. And Jesus pushes back, saying that they've just missed the point. Jesus goes for an obscure passage, including David from 1 Samuel 21 and the exemption given to priests in the book of Numbers, chapter 28, to highlight they're just out of their depth. And then he says this, chapter 12, verse 6. I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you'd known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. I really wish I could have been there to see the look on the faces of the Pharisees when Jesus said those words because any one of those sentences would have blown their minds. I'm bigger than the temple. I'm bigger than the Sabbath. I'm the one who's come to make the intimacy promised by the temple and the rest anticipated by the Sabbath possible. The temple, the Sabbath, the whole sacrificial system pointed to me and is realised in me. And they're saying, you really shouldn't have eaten the corn. This healing then, hot on the heels of this from verses 9 through 14, shows that when Jesus turns up, his goodness collides with the stingy, angst-ridden miserableness of the Pharisees. And when that comes together, something's got to give way. Chapter 12, verse 14. The Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. But Matthew just keeps adding layer upon layer of sweet Jesus goodness, like a stack of pancakes at the pancake kitchen. I couldn't think of anything better to say, but there you go. It just keeps layering up these incredible things. He's the Messiah. He's the judge. He's the giver of rest. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the true temple. He's the point of the whole sacrificial system. He's also the spirit-endowed, kingdom-building, life-changing servant Matthew inserts his longest Old Testament quote at this point, chapter 12, verse 15. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. 
Here is my servant whom I've chosen, the one I love in whom I delight. I'll put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He'll not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name the nations will put their hope. Martin Luther said this passage paints the whole Christ. It identifies Jesus as Isaiah's promised servant of the Lord, the one who will be given the spirit to gently, unfussily, quietly establish the kingdom, which is exactly what he does. Chapter, two, chapter 12, 22, he heals a blind, mute demoniac. The crowd says, could this be the son of David? The Pharisees say, no way. But Jesus refutes their allegation that he's on Satan's team by stating emphatically in verse 28, if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Can you see the cumulative picture of Jesus and the implications of his claims? You see, when God is working through the Holy Spirit like this, recognising, seeing what's going on, seeing that this is the fulfilment of all that God has been doing from the very beginning of time, that's the most important question and the most important thing to see in the universe. Which is why Jesus says in verse 30, whoever is not against me is with me. Oh, sorry, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Jesus himself says it's one thing to struggle with the fact that I am the Christ. It's quite another to recognise that God is at work by the Spirit in fulfilment of all that he's promised, to see what God is doing and to reject it. You see, the unforgivable sin isn't to struggle with who Jesus is or to take a while to work out all your questions and doubts and confusions about him and his identity. It's, It's to see that God is in action to get what he's doing through the Holy Spirit and to walk away. As the writer to the Hebrews says, it is to taste and see that God is good and then reject him. Specifically to reject the work of the Holy Spirit through the Son. You see, our reaction to the Spirit-endowed, kingdom-building Son doing his work reveals our hearts. That's surely why Jesus speaks as he does in verse 33. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognised by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Jesus basically says to these people, you need to go back to John's message. Repent before you enter the kingdom of God. Matthew isn't finished. He stacks on a couple more things. In verses 39 to 42, in response to the scribes and Pharisees looking for a sign, Jesus says, he's a greater prophet than Jonah and he's wiser than Solomon. Jesus is the ultimate prophet. He's the ultimate wise man, the ultimate king, the ultimate human being. He's the one who can clean us up. Verses 43 to 45 is a picture of Jesus, the spiritual cleanser who can rid us of demons, but it's no good unless we commit to him. 
And because Jesus is the head of our new family, check out how these chapters close. Verse 46. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus has already said that our allegiance to him outstrips our responsibilities, even to our immediate family. Now he goes even further. To be part of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus is to be part of a brand new family. Relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ, according to Jesus, trump those of our own flesh and blood. Such is the demanding, resetting and radical love of Jesus Christ our Lord. As I close, there is a sense that looking at three chapters of Matthew is just too much. But on another level, it's just profoundly simple. Matthew says this is our mission. It's the mission of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is our Lord, the one who has graciously brought us into his kingdom, who has sent us out on his mission. These chapters, I find, are a bit overwhelming, but I think they're supposed to be. Matthew knows what he's doing. He, he writes to force us to realise what a huge and wonderful thing it is to be part of God's kingdom, to stop for a moment, to pause, to gasp, that we, the dregs and the off-scarrings of the common people, are involved in this mission. And then in chapters 11 and 12, to stop and to gasp a little bit more at the multifaceted beauty and power of our Lord Jesus Christ, because he's the one who drives us and inspires us and motivates us and gets us out of bed in the morning and dominates our lives, captivates our affections, who sets our agenda. We are who we are, and we do what we do because of him. This is our mission, and Jesus is our Lord. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Father, uh, there are so many ways to answer that question that we were asked at the beginning. Who are we? Who am I? And yet, Father, today we are reminded through your word and by your spirit that if we are following the Lord Jesus Christ, if we've come to the point of recognising our need for him and turn back to you in repentance and faith, that in the Lord Jesus Christ we are caught up in what he is doing. Father, we are caught up in mission, caught up in making Jesus known in word and deed wherever we find ourselves until we see Jesus and enjoy him forever. Father, thank you for the privilege of being involved in your mission. Thank you for calling us, ordinary men and women and children, into your kingdom. Father, we praise you and thank you that in the midst of mission, you give us rest, you hold us close to yourselves, you, yourself, you, you empower us by your spirit. And Father, we praise you and thank you that standing behind our mission is 
the Lord Jesus, our Lord. Our Father, the one who was promised long ago, the one who's come in fulfilment of all your promises, Father, we pray that you'd help us to honour the Lord Jesus in how we live, motivated by your grace, empowered by your spirit, uh, to make Jesus known wherever we find ourselves, at work, at uni, at home, on the street. Father, may Jesus be glorified in and through us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church, North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.